The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Everactive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Assistant Professor of Teaching from the University of Calgary, Dr. Michelle Kilborn, and author of the book, A Curriculum of Wellness. And we're going to talk about how we can lesson plan in all subjects and for all ages of students with well-being in mind. Welcome, Dr. Kilborn. We're so glad to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we like to start off with asking our guests what strategies they go to or their favorite habits for taking care of their own well-being. So feel free to tell us what works for you. So I think for me, I grew up in British Columbia in the Okanagan Valley and my family, we were farmers and we grew mainly apples. So I grew up with trees surrounding me everywhere. And I wrote about this in my book a few years ago. I tell a story that might help listeners understand a little bit about me and also will help me illustrate some key principles for wellness-oriented teaching and learning a little bit later on. So can I share just a little excerpt? Absolutely. All right. As a small child, being surrounded by trees with all their unique characteristics, this was my way of life. I wandered up and down and between the rows when I played, and I worked in the trees when doing the many chores throughout the seasons. I had a favorite tree, a big old knotted tree that had a big trunk with a low fork that made it so easy to climb. Planted by my great-grandfather, the tree was reaching his twilight years. He was a wise friend, and I used to sit in his branches and I talked to him. He knew all my secrets, hardships, and celebrations throughout my early childhood. Now, the lowest Y of the tree provided a step for me to climb to his first main branch, which was perfect for lying down. I would look up through his branches to the bright blue sky and watch the birds and the bugs traverse his branches and leaves. In the late summer, I mostly just sat below the tree so I wouldn't disturb the apples. It was not far from a busy highway, but when I was in that tree, it was quiet, still. It was a safe, happy place for me where I was able to feel the energy of the land, water, air, and all the other living things around me. Hmm. And so now, (laughs) uh, one of my favorite go-to activities for taking care of myself is to go to the trees, any trees, you know, walk among them and sometimes just sit there with them and, and be still. So in town here in Calgary, my most favorite are by the river, but I also love going to the mountains to hike and just to hang out with the trees. So it really helps me nurture myself and to balance all the dimensions of myself. Oh, I love that. So all seasons, you're a tree seeker, and that really grounds you. You bet. Sounds like an idyllic childhood. Thank you for sharing that story with us. You're welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your current role at the University of Calgary and how you consider or think about student well-being through the work that you do? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of teaching here at the University of Calgary in the Workland School of Education. I also have another role. It's an academic director of professional learning and outreach in our Center for Wellbeing and Education. But my main role is as a teacher educator. And so what that means is I have the privilege of working with our pre-service teachers and being part of their journeys to becoming educators. I was a K-12 teacher myself earlier in my career, but now my role is to teach student teachers about teaching and learning. So it's that dual layered endeavor, you know, teaching about teaching. Mm. And when I think about that, you know, I first think about my own students and and how important their role is going to be in helping young people be healthy and well. My own personal and professional inquiry into wellness-oriented living and learning led me to some key understandings about how to teach in a more holistic and wellness-oriented way. Wellness-oriented teaching and learning concepts point to the influence that teachers have on the lives of students and how the very manner of their living in their own being, they can help students live their own lives of wellness. You know, my role and my students' role, and so our roles together in teaching young people, they're so important to the collective well-being of our communities and to the planet. And the concept of wellness is at the core. 
it is the place and space where I think we should start with everything. Well-being is my first thought in every day. The what, the why, the how I'm doing things and how I am being that encourages and fosters wellness in my life and my students' lives. So it guides all the decisions in my teaching. It's foundational. It's the through and through line in my life that helps me walk this journey in teaching and learning in a way that helps students learn how to take care of themselves and others to live fully in the world in a healthy and life-giving way. That makes a lot of sense to hear you say that in reflecting on my interactions with you, Dr. Kilburn. You're always very careful and present in conversations. And it's no surprise to me that you do make well-being such a priority and foundation for what you do when I think about our interactions. Let's talk a little bit about why teachers should consider well-being in the first place. By going through those connections between health and learning, which we're learning more and more about in the research, what do you find the most compelling in terms of the connection between well-being and learning? Well, I think it's important to consider well-being in our planning because the dominant discourse of how we view our students is, is somewhat rooted in that Cartesian discourse where body and mind are separate. So teaching and learning from a well-being lens, we want to be thinking about it in terms of promoting body-mind unity, emphasizing the process as well as the product, creating a balance between that subjective experience and objective knowledge, and honoring that harmonious relationship between humans and nature. So schools are an operative place to provide guidance for children and their families to live healthfully in the world. But often that standardized technocratic education model works against us to encourage and nurture a wholeness of living. And it is wholeness that is intricately and intimately connected to health and wellness. I'm not sure if you know, Elizabeth, what the original meaning of health was. No. It means wholeness, being whole, sound, or well. The origins come from around 1500s in Old English. So Michael Hart, he explains the concept of wholeness through the medicine wheel, which is used by many Indigenous peoples such as Cree and Dakota and here locally the Blackfoot. And it's used to express relationships in sets of four. And these are associated with the four cardinal directions. So four aspects of humanness, which is the emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual, four cycles of life, the four elements, four seasons. Wholeness involves moving in and through all of these aspects, and that is fundamental to the health of all living things. So of course, to move in this way, you have to recognize that there's the need for balancing our attention on all the four aspects of these relationships so that one part is not emphasized at the detriment of others. Mm -hmm. All the dimensions of the self are important. And if we neglect one and focus on one more than the others, we get out of balance. And that promotes ill health, which, of course, is not helpful for achieving learning outcomes. So health and learning outcomes are always linked. So picture that circle of the medicine wheel that represents wholeness and health. And think of it like a ball with four compartments. When all four compartments are filled equally, the ball rolls smoothly, right? Mm -hmm. But if one of the compartments has only been filled half full, how does the ball move now? Not great. <laughs> Not straight. <laughs> no, doesn't roll very well, right? So living and learning is really hard to do if you're out of balance. And the other piece to keep in mind here also is that it starts with the self. As teachers, the very manner of our own living and living well impacts our students and vice versa. And it speaks to the concept of interconnectedness. When we mention the meaning of health as being whole, I refer to John Kabat-Zinn and his explanation. He says that whole implies integration and interconnectedness of all parts and that the nature of wholeness is that it's always present and it's embedded into a larger wholeness. So health is then dynamic. It's this dynamic process and an inner balancing of ourself and the universe. And a taste of interconnectedness that brings that deep knowledge of belonging and a sense of being an intimate part of things and a sense of being at home wherever we are. 
So understanding that and establishing cooperative, collaborative relationships, that's so central to interconnectedness. And I mentioned before the medicine wheel, and it's not a mistake that it's a wheel, essentially a circle, right? Mm -hmm. You know, many Indigenous cultures use the concept of a circle to represent that all living things are connected and that each is affected as much as any part of the circle is affected, right? This is that reciprocity. And it highlights another way of being a teacher that is really necessary for nurturing healthy relationships with and among your students. And it's important in the balancing of power relationships and a key principle of mindfulness, that kind, compassionate living. And so there are lots of land-based activities that I do with my students that help them experience that connectedness. And I also do an activity with my students called Yarn Toss. Uh, Have you ever heard of this activity? I've heard of it, but I've actually never done it. So I'm curious to know how it goes when you do it. (laughs) Yeah. So you just get a big ball of yarn and you have all your students uh, stand in a circle and the first person throws the ball of yarn across to another person and then they grab the string and they throw the ball to another to another until everybody is holding on to the string. And so this is a really good way to show that interconnectedness. And so what you do as a facilitator is, you know, you make the string taut, you make it relaxed, you pluck it at one spot, or, you know, sometimes I'll throw a beach ball on top of it. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the point is, is that all of these actions, everybody in the circle can feel it. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really great activity to demonstrate that principle. I love that. I think that could be fun at multiple age levels and really reinforce that sense of interconnectedness and that we are a class community. Thank you for sharing some really fundamental understandings of the concept of well-being and health because these are words that we say often and maybe don't really reflect on like what do we mean when we say the words health and well-being. I know you are an expert on curriculum design and interpretation, and it's probably hard to distill all the learning that you have done on that topic. Uh, But if you could, what do you want teachers to understand about the role curriculum can play in their teaching? I think where I would like to start is to help people understand that curriculum isn't just a document. It isn't something that we just cover. That way of thinking is a taken for granted understanding a curriculum, that it's just a document outlining a set of learning outcomes that guides our classroom activities. But what if we considered curriculum differently, that we think of curriculum as a verb instead of a noun? And actually, if we trace the meaning of the word curriculum, it comes from the Latin word carere. And carere means running the course of life. So curriculum then becomes active, you know, subjective, it's social, it's a conversation about our lives and how we live them. You know, we can think of curriculum then as the journey of life. It's this alternate outlook about teaching where we understand that our being cannot be separated from the world and we take into account our location in time, space, embodied form through history and culture. And two very prominent Curriculum scholars, Bill Pinar and uh, Madeline Grumet, they say that in essence, curriculum involves dialogue between teachers, students, and the community. And it's this conversation about life and how we live it. And in this case, how we live it well. So this is where, once again, the connections come in. For us as teachers, this understanding means that a curriculum that promotes well-being focuses on our way of being with and relating to our students. So we strive to help them learn how to live well. And we recognize how our manner of our living connects with our students and with the greater community. So if curriculum is viewed as a journey, teaching is not only about what we teach, but also how we teach. And it's not something we apply onto students, but it's an ongoing dialogical journey with them. It's not one size fits all, and the outcomes are not attached to any specific activity. You have to get to know your students, work with them, and live the curriculum together with them. That's what curriculum is all about. 
I think that really is a foundational difference from how we often talk about and view curriculum, that idea of living it, and that it's a conversation between teachers, students, and the community. We're in the middle of a curriculum change in Alberta, and that feels really different thinking about curriculum as a conversation. Like as the community changes, as our world changes, that curriculum needs to change. It's part of the conversation between those stakeholders. That's a very different way to look at it. Before we dive into the specifics of lesson planning, can we talk about the general things that teachers can do regardless of the subject area to promote and enhance student well-being? Well, as you know, Elizabeth, teaching spaces are a buzz of activities, ideas, energy, and you know, with different people, cultures, histories, and traditions. So a big part of teacher and student well-being is the physical and social environment. So part of planning is establishing that positive and welcoming space and place that can help contribute to overall well-being for students, teachers, and others. So some things to think about when you're doing your long-term planning, and mostly this means for your course or your year plan for your class. The first thing to think about is building community. Plan opportunities for your students to get to know each other and to get to know you. Mm -hmm. Doing those icebreaker activities, the get to know activities early on and ongoing throughout the year. And I can't emphasize this enough because what I often see is we get a lot of focus in the first few weeks of doing that and then it drops off. And this is something that you have to continually cultivate throughout the year or throughout your semester. And there are many cooperative activities and teaching strategies to foster this. Can I share one of my first yeah. My go-tos? Yeah. Okay. So one of my first day activities or first week activities is a game called find someone who. So I have this bingo card that has a number of items. So, you know, find someone who has the same color of eyes as you and someone who maybe went on a hike this summer or somebody who likes cats rather than dogs. Mm -hmm. Fun things to get to know. So that's one of my favorite. Um, and sometimes I build community even further through adding a team building activity. And so with this particular one, I will add, say, a scavenger hunt and do it outside. And then we're interacting with the land. Or I'll do some amazing race type activities where groups of students have to accomplish a task. Fun. So that's the first thing is in your long term planning, think about building community. I think that's so important that that is time well spent. It is not just an introductory sort of activity to do that continually building relationships. And I find I mostly taught upper grades that sometimes those students, they want to get to know their classmates, but they're lacking that confidence or the social skills to initiate it. And so when a teacher can provide this sort of scaffold for interaction in a social activity that, yeah, they might roll their eyes about or whatever, but it gives them that excuse to talk to each other and get to know each other. And so it's totally worth it. I don't care if they don't think I'm a cool person. That's not my goal as a teacher, but it does build community. Those things really make a difference. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And be interested and ask your students about their lives and what's important to them. And it's reciprocal. So, you know, you want to get to know your students, but you want them to get to know you as well and take time to ask and know about their lives. And that, again, contributes to that safe place and that community. And I'm always working towards an atmosphere in my classes such that Students can bring forward anything mm. and not feel that they can't or that they're going to be looked at, that they, they asked the wrong question or what have you. I want them to feel safe, comfortable, and accepted in my class. So it's constantly working that into not just the first week, but throughout your classes and weeks. Yeah. I have a few other things in terms of general things that are more overarching. And one is mindful practice. John Wellwood says that health is intrinsic to our nature. So it's fully present already there in us. And so the source of health is wakeful awareness, it's clarity, it's vitality and caring. And so tuning into this intelligence at work in us it can guide us towards living in a healthy way. So mindful practice together with your students is also a great idea. And cultivating mindfulness, that can involve, not it's not always, but a type of meditative practice that helps us stop and pay attention or to notice. And this is 
as simple as just listening to your breath. That's just one simple way. Or something I often do with my students is the 54321 exercise. Mm-hmm. So five things you can see, four things you hear, three things you feel, two things you can smell, one you can taste. And it helps us become fully aware using all of our senses. And it helps us be in tune with our bodies. And it helps us connect that body, mind, spirit, and heart. And I just want to add that having awareness of our bodies and paying attention to the connection between body, mind, and spirit is really an important part of overall wellness. This helps students embody learning and connect to an experience in a more meaningful way. And it's also important for teachers, you know, not uncommon to many teachers. You know about this, right? Busy, busy, busy schedules and getting caught in that swirling chaos of the day-to-day. And sometimes it makes it really difficult to pay attention to the present moment and to be able to notice what's most important. And so as teachers, we have to pay attention to the fact that these are young human beings, little and big human beings in our classrooms and, and engage with them in a genuine way. And it means you have to listen and see and connect and try to understand what's going on in their worlds and and be able to look into their lives with that open mind and be willing to accept the way that they're looking at the world too. A simple but powerful example that I can think of is one of my colleagues, Mindful Practice, where she's paying attention to her students' social lives outside of class. You know, what was in front of her was the fact that Friday was usually date night, you know? And so when you have a physical education class in the afternoon on a Friday, don't schedule swimming or, you know, a high intensity workout. (laughs) While she may think it wasn't a really big deal, it was to them. And it is their reality. So scheduling something low key on a Friday, she got more students showing up and participating. And so it's this kind of deep listening. And it's a commitment that teachers can make to see and work with the reality of their students' lives. So that is the curriculum coming to life. And of course, mindfulness activities for teachers' personal well-being helps us pay attention to our own bodies and connect into what we need to be healthy and well. And then this in turn benefits our students and our families and our communities. And encouraging your students to be empathetic and kind, you know, for teachers being empathetic and kind, that allows you to pay attention to what's in front of you and to the sometimes vulnerable and impressionable young people in our classes, right? This is the key to teaching in a holistic way. We have all been through experiences that cause us difficulty or or pain, and and this is not always visible, right? So Mm -hmm. remind yourself that you don't know what's going on in your students' lives. So having empathy for them and understanding the activities you do with them that day may really make the big difference for them. It may really help them. So many great suggestions. And I really like thinking about mindfulness as a chance to tune in to your health that is always potentially present, but you're just maybe not seeing it the way that you tune to a radio station of like, oh, there's a little bit of static and now I can sense it. And I think you've raised some great ways for teachers to do that. And there are other ways as well. I know of teachers who journal when their students are journaling to maybe process the things that are on their mind. Or my daughter's language arts teacher, when they were reading fiction, this was in junior high, she would read fiction with them. Like there are ways that we can improve our well-being alongside these strategies that will also help our students be more present with us. Yeah. And it's so important. And that, again, that is that part about being with your students and bringing the curriculum to life with them. Yes. So when teachers are in the midst of that work of curriculum and interpretation, when they're planning those lessons and units, how can they infuse that planning with well-being? What's worked well for you? Yeah. So, you know, planning for quality teaching and learning, we always want to begin with the end in mind. And this includes considering the connections to the big picture, the connections beyond the walls of the classroom, beyond the school, beyond ourselves. What are the big concepts we want students to come away with? How are the learning outcomes connected to these? So when we plan, we want to ground what students are doing and learning in learning contexts that explore the big questions and then also consider who is in front of us. And so it's here I stop 
to think about my students and their own life worlds. This is where I remind myself of my philosophical grounding about living, teaching and learning in a way that promotes wellness. And I think about the principles of wellness, wholeness, interconnectedness, kindness, compassion, mindfulness, you know, the social, physical, emotional, spiritual dimensions of the self. So effective lesson planning, it has a holistic unity between the outcome, what students should learn, the teaching strategy, what you do to teach it, the student activity, what they do to learn it, and the assessment how you know if the outcome is achieved and to what degree. Mm. So when you write your lesson objectives, keep the whole child in mind and know that what you choose for your teaching strategy and then learning activities, do this in a way that encourages well-being. I think you have to remind yourself that teaching is really a series of decisions. So we need to be aware as well of what is influencing those decisions and be intentional in what and how we teach. So it presents an interesting set of questions. Who am I as a teacher? And how does the way I am a teacher affect how I teach? So this means some thought about past and present situations, people, experiences, and how those are influencing us, and letting go of our own attachments and knowing what philosophical and theoretical perspectives lie beneath the surface. And this is something I emphasize to my student teachers. Understanding who you are and what grounds your decisions is critical because in the busy, demanding world of teaching, our autopilot takes over sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so making sure we have a solid theoretical understanding of what drives that autopilot is really important. And of course, we want to make sure that includes wellness concepts. That's really interesting. It's making me think about how my teaching shifts depending on what's going on outside of that class. And, you know, how can you foster the conditions to be the kind of teacher that you want to be, even when things are busy, you know, like to recognize how much we are influenced by the busyness of the role, but to not let it compromise our vision for the kind of teacher that we want to be. Absolutely. And that's another key piece to that autobiographical outlook. It's not just about the past, but it also is about the future and having vision. And when you pull that all together, that past, present and future, you know, you're constantly having those considerations from the past, your vision for the future. And that's what constitutes what's happening for you now. And that all influences your decision making. Mm -hmm. And reinforces the need for that reflection so that we can then make different decisions if we realize, oh, this has gotten off of where I want it to be. Right. And the mindfulness, right? Yeah. Actually paying attention and knowing that's happened, right? Yeah. What are some of your favorite ways to incorporate well-being when planning those learning activities and tasks, the what of the teaching? What are some of your go-tos? So no matter what type of lesson plan I'm developing, I always ask myself, how is this contributing positively to my students' well-being and overall collective well-being? You know, how can I create learning activities that are more active, dynamic, creative? Sometimes I'll plan a lesson and then I'll stop and I'll step back and I'll say, hmm, you know, is there another way that gets more dimensions of well-being involved? Can this be more relational, more physically active? Our bodies were made to move and we need movement throughout our day. So when I make decisions about learning activities, I think about how active it is. And I challenge myself, can this be done in a more active way? Active physically, but also active socially, emotionally and mentally too. Mm -hmm. So understanding that classroom environments have traditionally been very sedentary, just changing up how we set up learning activities that allow for movement goes a long way in promoting well-being. It changes how our brains work. It encourages greater social interactions. It increases blood flow. It can help with self-regulation. And it can foster more embodied learning that promotes greater meaning and engagement for students. And I'm not just talking about doing energy breaks and activity breaks. Those are wonderful. I encourage these. They're great. And and they're a good starting point. But what I'm also talking about is planning with movement in mind. Mm -hmm. Not long after I began teaching grade 10 math, I noticed the energy in the room was really different. And I realized 
that, you know, most of the time the class was sitting and, and I wasn't used to this. I had been mostly teaching science and physical education. So I thought, well, I need to challenge myself here and think of ways I can make my math class more active and maybe cooperative and foster greater mindfulness among all my students. So to start, I just decided to stop making my students sit so much. <laughs> and that was it. I rearranged the room to open up space and we stood and we used chart paper, mini whiteboards, notepads. And at first they complained a lot because they were so used to sitting. But it wasn't long before we all started to notice some changes in the class. The energy was so much better. It was more positive in the class. You know, students began to collaborate more with a wider variety of students than just the people that used to sit beside them in their desks, right? Mm -hmm. And it took more time to organize that piece. So I thought it would take away from what I could accomplish, but surprisingly, we actually accomplished more. So I know this isn't big, groundbreaking, new, exciting teaching strategies. But it's something small. But this actually hits on one of the principles that grounds a wellness-oriented approach to teaching and learning. It's actually part of the philosophy that underpins mindfulness. And what that is, is the smallest of things are sometimes connected to the most significant events and make the biggest difference. Yeah. So it's a really simple but effective strategy. So did you share with the class explicitly, you're allowed to get up out of your seats, please move more? Like, is that kind of how you introduced the concept in addition to making the changes in the layout? Oh, yes. I brought them along with me and told them what I noticed. And we talked about it. And they shared with me how difficult it is to sit for long periods of time as well. So this was also, I guess, that collaborative meaning-making piece that's important to work with your students to create, right? Mm -hmm. That's a great example. I do have a couple other examples I'd like to share uh, as well. Please. So I think we all remember Pythagoras, right? That A squared plus B squared equals C squared. You know that yep. one? <laughs> It stuck. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's a popular math word problem that uses the concept of Pythagoras, and it's finding the diagonal of a room. And this is uh, traditionally a really hard word problem for students to do. They have trouble seeing the diagonal of the room on the diagram on a two-dimensional sheet of paper in their textbook. Right. So what I did is I borrowed the big long tape measure from the PE department to help students solve this word problem. And so we took the measuring tape and, you know, measured the length and width and height of the room. And, and then this really helps them because they couldn't see that diagonal because, you know, they are usually okay with finding the one on the floor, but they can't see the one in the middle of the room that goes from the top corner to the bottom corner. So in life form, in the space of an actual room, they can see that hypotenuse from that top corner to the bottom corner diagonally, right? Yeah. And when we actually map it out and they actually experience it, they can show me where the plane is and everybody remembers it. And this is what I mean by living the curriculum. They're experiencing the word problem, not just studying it apart from themselves. They become part of the triangle in the room. So they're up on their feet, they're changing their vantage points, they're standing with other classmates, some are holding the tape measure, and they're engaged with the curriculum and they remember it, you know? Mm -hmm. And you can do that everywhere with anything. You can bring anything to life. Anytime that we can get the body involved, I think it's so powerful for learning. I think that's why field trips really stand out to us, not just because they're different, but because they always involve the body more fully in sight, sound, movement. It just helps things to stay with you. Yeah, and I think we tend to compartmentalize and, and go, well, I'm going to teach this in the classroom and then later we'll go apply it. Mm -hmm. And I'm really encouraging people to think of ways to do that 
at all times, right? And and not chunk it out, but look for ways to bring things to life every day in your classroom. I'll give you one more example and then we can move on. But um, it's a guided cooperative learning strategy to provide ways for co-creating meaning and learning. So in ELA, you can use it for story building or in socials for problem solving and current events and issues. Science, you know, to review the scientific method for all the different contexts that there might be. But I'll use another math example. And you can just visualize different things from different subject areas. And so what I do is a simple activity that everybody knows is a relay. And I use whiteboards or chart paper and a marker as the baton. <laughs> and <laughs> I know. I like that. <laughs> and, and sometimes I book the multipurpose room or a larger space, but not always. And so first I you set parameters such as the method that you're using. And in this case, I'll use the example of solving quadratic equations. So we just come to an agreement that the method that we're using for solving and then how many steps there might be and create groups. And then as a team, they get to solve that equation or solve that problem or whatever you might be doing and give them a little bit of time to plan and strategize. And then you start the relay. And you can see it's active, it's relational, and it promotes that cooperative togetherness. And it's an embodied way of learning that really makes a difference to students. And it changes the dynamics of the class. You will see students be more supportive and more collaborative. And they actually do much better with both understanding the process of solving and the end solution. Mm-hmm. So is it a contest in the relay, like to see which team can do it first? You know, or not necessarily. you don't emphasize that, not necessarily, <laughs> yeah. but somehow it always ends up that way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's not a bad thing because, again, these are principles in life that come into the classroom and that we have to deal with in terms of understanding how to work with one another. And so, you know, you want to work with your students in those kinds of atmospheres that they're going to see out in the real world as well. Yeah, these are all really fun ideas and you've got my wheels turning. I think we sometimes limit a station approach to learning too much to the early elementary grades. You know, when you would come in and there would be like a blocks table or a Play-Doh table, like we can set up stations in any subject and even just taking the chairs away is one small way to promote movement and that collaborative sort of group learning that can happen, whether you're developing a skill at a certain station or just all working on the same problem. The sky's the limit in terms of how you can be creative with this, but it does require a shift. And like you said before, that intention in the planning stage, it's hard to do that on the fly. You need to make steps ahead of time to build that. That's right. That actually leads to my next question. So what if it does feel just so different maybe from the teaching that we received as students and so we have some discomfort about teaching in a different way from our default teaching mode? So what advice would you give to someone who feels like, okay, I want to try something new and step out of my comfort zone, but I'm not sure how this is going to go and just sort of feeling unsure? Yeah, well, my biggest piece of advice is be bold and just be yourself and rely on your unique gifts and talents and focus on the little things. And don't be afraid to be a little vulnerable in front of your students. Show that you're human. Share your stories with your students. Laugh, tell jokes. You know, <laughs> myself, I am horrible at telling jokes. And, <laughs> and ask my family. I am sometimes really bad at getting them too. But one year at our family's holiday season dinner, we opened those holiday crackers that snap open. Mm-hmm. And inside they have like a prize and a slip of paper. And it usually has a proverb or a riddle or a joke on it. And so I collected those and I used them in class with my junior high students. So I would start the class by reading a joke. And of course, they were incredibly corny. But I spent so much time building it up and mentioning how horrible I was at telling jokes, that when I told it, the students moaned and they groaned, but they smiled and you know, some even laughed. And before long, students were looking forward to my corny jokes. And it added such positive energy to the room, totally outside my comfort zone. Yeah but made such a big difference because I dared to take that step. Yeah. What about assessment and evaluation? How can teachers infuse that work of assessing our students' learning 
but with an eye to their own well-being. Do you have recommendations for that? Ah, uh, yes. Assessment. Everybody is always thinking about assessment. We're kind of caught in this quandary of a standardized education system that's dependent upon summative evaluation in a set period. But there's still plenty of opportunities to incorporate more holistic assessment strategies to help contribute positively to student well-being. We know that most students want to succeed, but what often happens in the planning, assessing, and evaluation cycle is a breakdown in communication. So students need to know and understand what's expected of them and, and feel that they can be successful. And as I'm sure most of your listeners have experienced, it's incredibly frustrating to be working on something only to find out that you were going in the completely wrong direction or realizing that you actually just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's usually because there's some prerequisite knowledge or skills that are missing. So authentic assessment practices that support wholeness and well-being hit on many principles that we have already been talking about. These types of assessment practices, they're relational, they're interconnected, they're dialogical, respectful. They take into consideration kindness and compassion. They need to be balanced. And we do need to be considering all the dimensions of the whole child. So first, you have to know and communicate clearly to your students the interconnectedness of the learning outcomes, the lesson objectives, the success criteria, the learning activities that you plan, and then what you're saying to them, which is your formative feedback that then links into the end, which is the summative feedback. Mm -hmm. There, again, is that interconnectedness principle, but in terms of assessment. The second part of authentic assessment with well-being in mind is relationships. You need to know your students and account for the varying gifts and talents that are in your room and attend to the special learning needs and ensure your classroom environment really incorporates and encourages that growth mindset. And then you need to be intentional with your feedback, making sure it is clearly addressing and is clearly communicated in relation to those goals and objectives that are set. And then the other thing is you need to involve your students in creating success criteria that's in kid-friendly language and it respects the learning needs of all your students. The purpose of feedback is to give students obviously some information about how they're progressing in their learning journey compared to the success criteria you developed with them. And you want to communicate this to them regularly, right? We know this as assessment for learning, so we've all heard that. So whether students, teachers, parents, whether they provide that feedback, it's important that it takes into consideration the impact on overall well-being. I like to keep in mind the what how and when of feedback and the four dimensions of the young person in front of you. And I want these feedback learning cycles to be motivating and inspiring and to provoke curiosity and imagination and help students to be comfortable with the not yet. This is something that Carol Dweck talks about. And it's also grounded in Maxine Green's philosophy. Maxine Green is one of the most prominent educational philosophers of our time. And throughout her life, even at the age of 90, she would say, I am not yet. Hmm. Just remember, the magic happens in the process, in the journey, in the living. This is where the learning truly happens. And so while it's important to know the end product and what that is and what we're moving towards and working towards, the good stuff is in the journey. And everyone's journey is different and we need to be respectful and supportive of that. Mm -hmm. It does go back to how we conceptualize curriculum though. If curriculum is considered a checklist or a manual filled with standards to be achieved in a specific period of time, it's really challenging to teach in a wellness-oriented way. Nurturing a wholeness of being is ongoing practice. It is open-ended and students do learn in their own time. So we understand this because we see time and time again that some of what students are learning doesn't manifest itself into action or achievement until much, much later. So some students, they simply take longer to appreciate some things. And this is of enormous relevance in teaching. But unfortunately, it's unrecognized in a lot of educational theory today. 
agreed. You really do have to consider a lot, but it again, the busyness of, of school can sometimes force us to view assessment as the task to complete rather than the opportunity to improve and inspire learning. So I really like how you framed it. What is the relationship between lesson planning with teacher and student well-being? You know, planning has a place in your life as a teacher, and here's why it helps your overall well-being. Planning helps you stop for a moment, and you then see all your students with all their special and unique talents and gifts so that you can then create lessons that meet all their needs. And it helps you connect the dots between the well-being goals, learning outcomes, and be able to communicate those success criteria that you created together and connect it all together ultimately with the student achievement. And planning then helps you in the moment in class because we know we have to adapt and adjust. But if we've planned, we can do that in a more intentional way instead of just winging it. And we do that. I know we all have to at some times. But if you're always winging it, it can create a lot of stress over time. And that frenzied way of being It'll have an impact on your well-being and the overall classroom atmosphere and also affect your students' well-being. So beginning teachers, you will get better and more efficient with practice with all the planning. The more purposeful, authentic planning you do, the easier it gets. It is, though, a delicate balance. There are times where you're just going to have to say good enough for now It'll be okay. And just remember, you know, you're living this with your students. It doesn't have to be perfect. You are learning alongside your students. You're guiding them. You'll make mistakes and then you'll reflect and then you'll know how to adjust for next time. And trust me, this will decrease classroom management and behavioral issues. It'll increase learning opportunities and it'll lower your stress and anxiety. I felt that, that when you are teaching from a thoughtful plan, it just feels different. It actually feels different in your body when it's like, okay, there's been some thought and intention and reflection on this. And even if things are going to go a little bit different because you're dealing with humans, (laughs) things always go a little bit different than planned. There's like a calm underneath it when you've planned to the best that you can. So I really like that you've connected that to teacher well-being as well. Can you share an example of a time when you feel like you really lived the curriculum with your students in a way that promoted well-being as well? Yeah. So one day, my students and I, and these were my grade 11 students, and we were outside for class, and they were reminiscing about the middle school that they went to, which was just across the park in the playing Mm. fields. And one thing that they noticed was that there were very few kids outside playing during the morning break when our class was happening. And they thought how sad that was. And they wondered, what's happened? And then it just led to further discussion about the health status among children and youth and lack of play and physical activity, social interactions and games being passed down from generation to generation. You know, these big picture connections. So the students and I designed a unit that connected into many different curricular learning outcomes across many subject areas. So this was a joint effort between my physical education class and a math class, actually, of one of my colleagues. And of course, we contacted the middle school and we began coordinating with a grade six teacher. And I won't get into the specific learning outcomes that we focused on, but we made decisions together about what the learning outcomes meant. So the students learned and designed playground games, and they wanted to teach these games to the students at the middle school. And there were multiple roles that came about that uh, involved a lot of the knowledge skills and attitudes and understandings that are part of, in this case, math and physical education primarily. And so there was people that were doing calculations regarding timing, groupings, coordination of space, time efficiencies, you know, measurement, budgeting, material costs. And, you know, they researched playground games. They learned how to play them. (laughs) And then they had to learn how to teach them and then put that all together into a session that they spent with those grade six students. 
And then they also decided that there needed to be a legacy in that there needed to be something that somebody could use, so a guide. So they put together a leader guide so that this could be continued by others over at the school. And you know, the best part of this, Elizabeth, was about a month later, we're out and watching uh, and looking across those fields again. And we had a big epiphany, kids playing. Mm-hmm. And the best part was they're playing our games, they're <laughs> playing our games, right? And it was this amazing moment. And so that really was about living the curriculum together. What a powerful story of collaboration. I love that you were involving multiple subjects here, multiple grade levels, multiple teachers to come together and live the curriculum. I'm sure that was such a memorable experience for those students. I actually wonder how many of those went on to become teachers having had that experience with you, Um, but also for those younger middle school students to kind of be reacquainted with playground games in the context of learning the math concept. That's such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. So our last question is, what could a teacher start doing tomorrow? One of those small things to better support the well-being of their students from your perspective. What's a good first small step? Well, the first thing is be intentional. Remember, we are all connected and each detail of life, no matter how big or small, it can contribute to something so much greater. So start from a foundation of well-being with everything you do. See children from that lens of wholeness. Know who you are. Challenge your assumptions and keep asking, how does this contribute positively to my well-being, my students' well-being, and collective well-being? That's a powerful note to end on. Thank you so much again, Dr. Kilburn, for coming and sharing all your ideas and the background on some of these concepts that we do take for granted in the teaching profession. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Pod Class, a podcast from Everactive Schools that inspires educators with ideas for a happy, healthy classroom. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or visit our website at everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, The Pod Class is dismissed.